So wait, you don't know Colonel Jones? Colonel Jones? Yo ass better call somebody. Three, two, one. What's up, everybody? This is E-Rock, host of 321 Show, CrossFit podcast powered by River Parish CrossFit. And of course, with me as always, Raymond Gidry, the owner of River Parish CrossFit, the guy that makes all of our CrossFit shenanigans possible. On this podcast, we're going to have some typical CrossFit banner, some do's and don'ts, pet peeves, or really just whatever we feel like talking about for the day. So sit back and relax. We hope that you enjoy, and we're coming at you now with another CrossFit podcast in three Two, one, show. All right, episode five. So, have you ever met someone? who just exudes leadership, respected from everyone, inspires others to do things they normally can't or normally wouldn't do, or just an all-around great guy that everyone should get to know. Well, today's your lucky day because we have Jordan the Colonel Jones with us. <laughs> Welcome, Jordan, uh, current Colonel. Thanks. You know, funny story, uh, just before we start off, um, we know Colonel from CrossFit, and for the longest time... I didn't even know what his first name was. It was just always Colonel. Like anytime he was always introduced, it was, oh, Colonel did this and Colonel did that. So it was just kind of funny. Like it took a while for me to know that it was actually Jordan, you know, even though I knew that you were a real Colonel and stuff. But uh, to start off, uh, we just want to kind of talk about how we met you. And then we just want to get into some of the really interesting things in your life because you uh, I know bits and pieces, but I would love to hear the whole story, and I would also love for everyone else listening to the podcast to hear that story, too, because I know the parts that I, that I know about you and your family is really fascinating, and I, I know I speak with, on behalf of everybody at the box that it has been a pleasure to know you, so I just really want everybody else to, to get to know you as well. Cool. Um, so, Ray, I'm going to let you kind of start off um, since you, you own the CrossFit uh, when we were back in parody, yeah. um, Colonel and all came mm-hmm. in. So Colonel, is <clears throat> one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the only uh, remaining founder members from the old box. Uh, there's only a handful of us left. Colonel is one of them. Uh, uh, came in, you know, looking for a challenge. Uh, talked about uh, heavy rucks during Crescent City Classic. Talked about, you know, military background. You know. Uh, we share some common knowledge, being I was in the military and he was, a, you know, a colonel. Uh, so yeah, got to got to know Colonel like that a little bit. Uh, immediately, <clears throat> overly impressed with his ability for <clears throat> being an athlete that's coming in, starting in the masters range. Uh, you know, mental toughness out of this world. I mean, un, uncharted compared to most of us. Uh, so, yeah, you know, from day one, we knew he was a special guy, special athlete, uh, always happy, always brightens the room when he's there. You know, he's he's the guy uh, like in my life, you know, that 
he's he's one of those players that as soon as they show up, your team gets better. Even if it's not his specialty that day, you know it's going to be a good day if Colonel's there. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what he's brought to us in our box. Uh, but, yeah, me and him talk regularly, so I kind of know some of the back stories, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of like some holy shit moments, uh, you know, along the course. Yeah, we're, we're uh, definitely going to get into those. Most <laughs> people uh, don't know, but it's, uh, it's a pretty awesome story, you know. Uh, uh, you know, the most fascinating thing for me and the thing that, that spoke volumes when talking about the military is he's he made it to colonel, but he started on the enlisted side, you know. So for people not in the military, they may not have too much of an understanding, but that's basically started from the bottom, now we're here, yeah. you know. Uh, that exudes what, uh, you know, you it's, it's a, a leadership principle that, you know, you can tell a troop to go dig a hole, and they're going to think, well, you've never had to dig a hole. Well, guess what? Yeah, and I, I don't want to spoil it because we're definitely going to get <laughs> right. into that because I have some questions surrounding that later on. Yeah. But, yeah, that's definitely, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get this going. So just to start off, um, before we get into the military part, what was it? Because I know you don't mind. How, how old are you right now? 55. 55. So you've probably been doing CrossFit four or five years, I'm guessing. Yeah, 2012, Ish. I want to say. Yeah. At least. Okay. Yeah, it had to be 2012. Yeah. All right. So, so besides the fact that, you know, you're in phenomenal shape for that age, what was it that really made you want to walk into the box and start CrossFit? Well, actually, it was um, a buddy of mine who served on my, my uh, staff in the military, uh, Scott Welchel. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so I was the uh, commander for the 61st Troop Command, and he was on my staff. And, you know, we were all, when it came time for physical exercise, obviously that's, that's my bread and butter, mm-hmm. and, I, and I love physical exercise, obviously. Uh, so it was just in the course of a conversation one day, and, and Scott said, uh, hey, you ever heard of CrossFit? And I said, no, I haven't. What, what's that all about? And as soon as he started to describe it, I got excited. And I thought, man, these are... The different exercises that he described to me, I said, man, I've been doing this, that kind of stuff most of my life. So if there's a place where those types of exercises are already organized and you just walk in and plug and play, I said, oh, I'm all about that, dude. So that's how it happened. So uh, Scott introduced me to the, to the box and the very first day I said, in fact, I was like halfway through the first wide when I, the, the intro so you could get a... Um, an assessment of my level of fitness and all that stuff, Ray. I, I was, I said, I'm here to stay now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fun. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to elaborate on your CrossFit career and your CrossFit journey a little bit later. But what I really want to get into first is, uh, like I said, what I'm most excited about is some of your military stories. So we're going to kind of turn the mic over to you for the most part and let you do a lot of talking. <clears throat> Ray and I may interject on some questions. I know that Ray is military, so he understands a lot of things that you might say. And with me being, you know, halfway dummy when it comes to that, <laughs> if there's things that I don't understand, I'm just going to ask to clarify, and it'll probably help some people at home uh, as well. So, uh, just to start off with, <clears throat> tell me first off how you got into the military, and what made you want to get there, and then just start from the beginning and tell us, just, just tell us the story. Whew, that's a lot, man. So first of all, thanks, thanks for all the humbling uh, comments. Um, I'm just I've been blessed with a lot of opportunities through my life, and and the military obviously was was an important one for me. So 
Uh, I guess for a lot of people don't know is um, those that know me now that didn't know me when I was growing up as a kid, uh, two totally different, maybe not personas, but uh, experiences, and uh, they think a little bit different of me if they, uh, maybe they'll think different of me if they, if they knew some of the stuff that um, I was involved with as a kid and what led me to, to get into the military. So I guess the, uh, the short version is uh, came from a broken home. I have um, a younger brother who's two years younger, and then uh, two older sisters were all two years apart. Uh, so without getting into much detail, um, I didn't have a very positive male role model as a father. Uh, my parents divorced when I was about four, and uh, both parents were alcoholics. And once my dad left, my mom was you know, left to raise four kids, and one of them being a kid that was out of control. Uh, so I had a lot of discipline issues as a kid growing up. And and it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe when I went off to college that I finally realized where the, the anger came from as a kid growing up. And it, it it all revolved around the experiences that we had, which led to the, the family breaking up in short. Um, but I was always involved in uh, in sports as a kid. And uh, that was that was my solace. That was my way of kind of checking out of the net, and not focusing on the you know the, the experiences that that I had at home. And so, when I was in sixth grade, um, I was hanging around with the wrong crowd. I had six D's, twenty-two detentions, punched my female teacher in the in the stomach. I have no idea why, um, but I was a mess. And uh, put a lot of things in my body, shall we say, that I wasn't supposed to, that uh, most people would think uh, unimaginable at that age. But, you know, I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, and that's what was going on in society at the time. Um, so that was my start for the physical exercise and getting involved in sports. So it didn't matter what, it, what season it was, um, we were outside playing all the time. And that's at least when I was doing that, I wasn't in trouble. So my mom didn't have much money. She was an English teacher at, uh, at Old Perry Walker in, uh, in Algiers, where we grew up. Uh, but my grandparents, fortunately, uh, owned a construction company called Jordan Construction. That's where Jordan came from. I was born on their anniversary. So uh, in sixth grade, when I had that wonderful record, um, my, uh, my mom turned to the grandparents and said, hey, we need to do something with him. And I remember as a kid, they said, okay, you can go to reform school or Catholic school. So the decision was already made, I'm sure, but they asked me anyway. And I said, okay, reform school, uh, I'll get my butt kicked. Uh, that uh, the Catholic school probably won't be any beatings. Yeah, I'll, I'll choose that. So um, that school ended up being St. Stanislaus. So it was a boarding school run by the, the Brothers of the Sacred Heart. And it's exactly what I needed. So it pulled me out of that environment where it was just toxic. And I'm convinced that if I stayed there in, in Algiers, hanging around with the people that I did and doing the things that we did, that could have easily uh, ended up killing us, killing me, or, uh, or running into jail or getting addicted to drugs or some combination thereof, uh, that would have happened. So, you know, pulling me out of that environment and putting me in St. Stanislaus was, was the... The first thing that really set me on the right track. So it was run by the Brothers of the Sacred Heart. So it was all males. It was a very organized and, and structured environment. 
Uh, when it came time for homework, all the doors are open. It's, it's a dormitory setting. Uh, you sit your butt in the seat and you do your homework. And if you want to get up to go to the bathroom, you got to raise your hand and get permission to do that. Uh, so it was exactly what I needed. It was, you know, finally had uh, positive male role models and it was in a Christian environment, uh, which was real important too. So if you stepped out of line, um, the brothers would put you in line. Um, and again, that's what I needed. And there was nothing else to do. I stayed there uh, on the weekends. My brother would often go home, but I was so interested in playing sports. That's all I did. So I played basketball, football, track, and tennis. And I had no desire to go back home on the weekends because, you know, there was nothing there. I mean, this was, it's a beautiful campus. And I just flourished there. So I got that, um, got the discipline I needed. Um, I was held accountable for my actions. And the sports was really my, my way of, of dealing with, with all the emotions that I, I really didn't understand I had. Um, so I had some major anger management issues, shall we say, as a kid growing up. But uh, that was put in check by the brothers real quick. In fact, um, I remember one time in, uh, in ninth grade, there was about 16 of us that didn't do our homework uh, for math class. And the teacher was the baseball coach. So uh, I mean, he's got the big old forearms like Popeye. So he lined all 16 of us up, bend over and touch your toes. So, you know, I weigh like a buck and a quarter. Like it, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. um, so it didn't take long for me to understand that, uh, you know, either you toe the line and do what you're supposed to or you're going to pay the consequences. And it worked for me. Um, so my junior year rolled around. And uh, there was a recruiter that came from the Mississippi National Guard. It was uh, like two and a half platoons. Um, so like maybe, uh, maybe 100 people total. Uh, and the guy that showed up was, was a non-commissioned officer wearing his, uh, his dress uniform. And uh, he was very sharp. And uh, I guess, I don't know if it was official recruiting day or you know, whatever it was, but uh, he was there and I saw it and I said, that's when I want to be right there. You know, because it, it, he exuded confidence, the way he carried himself, uh, and just the idea that um, uh, of being in the military and all the pride and patriotism that goes along with it, even as a kid, you know, back then in the, in the early 70s, you know, you respected the military, you respected your country, and that was part of what uh, I learned at St. Stanislaus from the brothers. So I saw that NCO and I said, that's what I'm going to be. So I knew my mom didn't have enough money to pay for me to go to college. So my junior year of high school, um, I joined the Mississippi National Guard. And, um, and then went, so I went to my regular drills. Um, and two weeks after graduating from, uh, from high school, all my buddies were going to Florida to party and I was going to boot camp. So that was the real departure from, you know, my, my history and past of partying and doing all the stuff that I wasn't supposed to, going down that, that wrong path, that was the fork in the road, and that's, you know, uh, that positive new, things were to that come. That new start. That. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so, interesting story about uh, going off the boot camp was, um, so I had two duffel bags full of all the stuff that you're supposed to show up at uh, a boot camp with, and, you know, I turned 18 then. Um, so I took a flight from New Orleans to Gulfport, Mississippi, and I ended up at the, at the airport there. I don't remember what time it was. It was maybe mid-afternoon. 
and I remember hearing an announcement over the, over the PA system that the airport was closing. I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll just sit here and wait for my flight the next morning, whatever time it was. Um, and they said, okay, the airport's closing. And they're literally shuttling, shuttling people out of the airport. Like, no, we're closing the doors down. You got to go. And, uh, you know, I'm 18 years old. I don't know, squat. Um, so they, they kicked me out of the airport. And I said, well, damn, I'm, I have no money. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I just put my two duffel bags on the front door. And I said, well, when they open this puppy up in the morning, they're going to have to physically move me because I'm not going to be late, right? That pucker factor was well above zero. Um, so that was my start to, uh, to boot camp. Slept outside the airport the first time. Oh, there was no sleeping. You know, it was just <laughs> concrete, and I just leaned up against my duffel bags, and uh, I'd get up and walk around, maybe do some push-ups and, and lay down, and, you know, just just letting the hours pass. That was it. Mm-hmm. So that was my first experience going to boot camp. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, so boot camp happens. Um, did, you, did you get shipped off somewhere after boot camp was over, or...? No, um, so I joined as traditional National Guard, and so a lot of people don't understand the difference when they say National Guard and Reserve, so it's all a part of the Reserves. So as, as a National Guardsman, um, you serve at the pleasure of the, of the governor and also, you know, on the, on the federal side. So you're, as a National Guardsman, your primary responsibility is to, to, uh, to defend the country when you're, when you're called up to do so. But you also have a dual role of, uh, again, serving at the pleasure of the, of the governor if there's a civil unrest. Typically, like here in New Orleans or uh, in Louisiana, there are hurricanes, so hurricane duty or, or major flooding, something like that. So I was a traditional National Guardsman. So what that means is um, one week in a month, usually a Saturday and a Sunday, and two weeks every summer, I'd have two weeks of active duty. Um, so once I graduated from boot camp, I went back home with my mom. Um, my, both, my, both my sisters were off at college, and uh, my brother was still at, living with us at home. And again, I knew my mom couldn't pay for me to go to college, but that's at least one of the positive things that, uh, that both my parents pushed was that you need to get an education. Uh, and getting a college degree is the way to do that, because if whatever your skill sets were, if, if, if uh, that fell through, you know, at least you had that degree to, uh, to fall back on. Um, but again, I didn't have enough money and, and needed it my mom, so I started working um, at J. Ray McDermott as a welder and fitters helper. So I did that for a year and uh, made enough money, and then with the help from, um, from Uncle Sam, the GI, Montgomery GI Bill, right. um, got into uh, USL when it was that, mm-hmm. you know, referred to as a university for slow learners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so went off to college. I continued, uh, uh, being in the national guard, did that for a number of years. And, you know, as Ray started off saying, uh, I was an enlisted guy. And, and I guess one of the things that, that's really important for me to, to pass on, uh, which, which I attribute a lot to, of my success to today is when I left. So I joined the Mississippi national guard when I was going to St. Stanislaus. And after I graduated, uh, I needed to find a new unit, and one of the things that that caused that to happen was, um, uh, you know, I talked about my background and partying a little bit, but uh, it wasn't all out of me then. Uh, I think I was, yeah, I was still 18. Uh, I was still in the Mississippi National Guard, and uh, one night I stayed up with my buddies all night long, 
drinking beer, and then uh, it came time for me to go to drill in Mississippi. So I had no sleep, uh, drank beer all night long. I put on my little pickle uniform. It's like the, the ones just solid green, like the, we still had the, the ones that the Vietnam vets were, were wearing. And I got behind the wheel like an idiot and uh, started to drive to Mississippi. And that last turn on, uh, on Highway 90 before I get into Bay St. Louis or, or Waveland, where the unit was, um, I heard a horn going off. And what happened was, you know, for me being intoxicated and being just wiped out from fatigue, I fell asleep and the horn was my head on the horn. So my head just fell forward on the, uh, you know, on the steering wheel and the horn was going off and both of my, both my hands, my arms were at both sides and I was in the ditch going highway speeds. As soon as I heard the horn just instinctively, you know, I looked up and I saw that I was in the ditch. I don't know how fast I was going. And I just grabbed the wheel. And so that last turn off towards old Highway 90, I think it is. Yeah. So I was in the ditch there and flew up over the road, plowed through the signs in the air, and then landed in the ditch on the other side. And I was just I was just holding on to the wheel and I guess, you know, just slammed on the brakes and um, just skidded for a long period of time. And amazingly, I survived it and the car was still drivable. You know, my heart's probably just pounding through my chest, and I, and I made it to drill. And uh, so my car, it was my mom's car. Um, so my sergeant says, hey, what the hell happened to you? I said, oh, I fell asleep behind the wheel. Now, obviously, he didn't mention anything about me staying up all night and drinking, right? Um, so he said, look, you, you could have just called in. And I said, no, I didn't want to be late for drill, sergeant. So that was, um, that was an eye-opener. And it wasn't the last episode like that I experienced. But that was one of the things where I said, look, I got to find something close to the house. So again, I was, um, I moved back home with my mom in Algiers. So back then when they had phone books, I just started flipping through the yellow pages. And I, I was just looking for anything that was close by. And um, I ran across this unit and it was the first the 141st Field Artillery Battalion. I didn't know squat still. I, mean, I graduated from boot camp, but you know, it's you go to boot camp to um, to learn the basics, you know, right. customs, courtesies, leadership, how to wear your uniform, bearing, you know, all that all that kind of stuff. Um, so I didn't know anything about the different types of units and what they did and that sort of thing. So I just found the unit that was closest to me, and that was it. Well, little did I know that that was the infamous Washington Artillery, which is the oldest field artillery unit outside of the original 13 colonies. So, you know, God had his hand in that, uh, obviously. You know, it's part of the, the, the big plan for all of us, uh, which I didn't know at the time. Uh, so I joined the unit. And so I was still going to USL, uh, and I was, by that time, I don't know, maybe a private first class or, or a specialist, but one of the things that really helped me stay on that straight path was that both of my section sergeants were Vietnam vets. And these were men of honor and integrity and just set the, that fine example of leadership. They were just very good men. Uh, both of them were, were family men and, uh, and dedicated to their wives and that sort of thing. And just as, you know, as I saw that NCO that uh, showed up at St. Stanislaus and I said, that's what I want to be like. When I saw these NCOs and how they treated me and gave me responsibility, I said, Yep, that first image I have of, of 
of what a soldier is supposed to be like and what a man is supposed to be like, those guys exuded that. And what I appreciated was they gave me a lot of responsibility and I just flourished in that environment. So I was, you know, I didn't have much rank at all, but I was in this thing called Battalion uh, Fire Direction Center. So it's the technical aspects of the field artillery. So it was very challenging. And, um, you know, they put me in, in charge of things like setting up all the tracked vehicles. So there's a lot of uh, tracked vehicles when you go out to the field. There's a camouflage net that has to go over everything and setting up the radios. So they gave me all these responsibilities, and I just, I just wanted more and more. And, uh, you know, when I screwed up, they put me in line, but they, they just kept feeding me more things to do. And, um, you know, just uh, it, it motivated me. So um, I guess I was, I don't know how many years in, I guess it was about seven years, seven or eight years uh, as an enlisted guy, and then I transitioned to become a non-commissioned officer. Again, the, the prime examples I had were those two Vietnam vets, and you know, now I was one of them. And the cool thing was now I was in charge of, of guys, and, and I never forgot the lessons learned from those two NCOs, and I said, now I bear the responsibility of setting the right example for, for these younger guys. So, you know, my, my life experiences outside of the military, uh, coupled with uh, the experience that I had, just made me feel like I was um, a worthwhile human being and that I was going to be a positive male role model for somebody else. Right. And I wasn't going to be what I didn't, what I didn't get you know, from my father growing up. Uh, and at some point, there was a, a captain in fire direction control that said, uh, hey, Jones, you need to think about going to officer cannon school. Uh, what's that? I don't know. I had, had no idea what it was. Uh, and he kept pressing me, and, uh, and eventually that's when I switched over to, uh, or got into officer candidate school. And for, for most people that don't know, it's, it's where you learn how to become an officer. Um, and that was, um, it was a good move. You know, I was, as those NCOs uh, gave me more responsibility, and, um, you know, I climbed in the rank, I just, I wanted more and more. And just flourished in an environment, so it just seemed natural that uh, you know I switch over to become an officer. So I can keep on going, but uh, yeah, and uh, so yeah, so as I was saying during the intro, <clears throat> you know, being as a, a prior enlisted guy, uh, we I, I worked for a couple of officers, uh, a warrant officer, and uh, well, in the Navy, it was a lieutenant junior grade, but every other branch it would be a second lieutenant. Um, they all started as enlisted as well, E1s, and then moved up through the ranks. Then they commissioned and got, uh, you know, their ranks on the officer side. And I can tell you as a prior enlisted guy, when they when they said things, no, uh, no disrespect, but it meant so much more to us when it came from them because they know, I mean, I, I've had guys I've served with that were, we were, we were 23, 24 years old. They would graduate from Annapolis with their butter bar, and they're 22 years old trying to give orders to guys that were, you know, been in 22 years, you know, and that's a tough place to be in for a 20, 22, 23-year-old person. Well, these guys were, uh, they had no idea, you know, what it took to get this done, but they're telling us to do it. Well, on the other side, we have these officers like Colonel that started enlisted, you know, commissioned uh, 
and now they're giving orders. So it meant so much more coming from them because they knew not only what it takes to do it, but they've, you know, they were boots on the ground at one time. They were <clears throat> digging trenches with e-tools. They were, <clears throat> you know, they were the hands at one time and now they're giving the orders. So it's not like just somebody going, hey, go do this. Well, yeah, you're telling us to go do this. You've never had to do it before, you know? So, I mean, I'm sure uh, Colonel Jones's troops appreciated it coming from him if they knew he was enlisted, you know, as much as some of the officers that I served under uh, that were prior enlisted, you know, they, they knew exactly what it took to do it, not just, hey, we need to get this done, let's do it, you know? And that meant that, that meant the world to... Uh, to, to me and my, my fellow guys that uh, we worked with, knowing that our leadership had the experience, not just the ranking, you know, it, it goes a long way. Yeah, and that was, um, that was important to me, too, and I, and I grew up in that unit. I started there as a, as a private E2, and uh, we'll get to, you know, I guess other experiences in, in my military career, but, uh, you know, as a non-commissioned officer, you're used to being in charge of a section, and you and you know you have to lead by example, which means you have to have the the knowledge uh, the the knowledge skills and abilities to show the, you know the soldiers that you're responsible for how to do this stuff. So you you used to being hands on, and that's what NCOs are. You know they they make things happen. So when I transitioned to become an officer, um, it, it was hard for me to get out of that mindset, and I needed my once again I needed my strong NCOs because I was still in the unit to say, hey, sir, we don't need you to do that anymore. We know you're capable of doing it. Now we need you to step back. Let us do the work. We need that, you know, that higher level of guidance from you. But uh, it, 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 it took a while. If, if from speaking from a junior troop, like to see leadership, you know, wanting to go hands on or wanting to be the, the to lead from the front, you know, which <clears throat> in some forms that that is the case, you know. Uh, some of your lower officer rankings, they do lead from the front, you know. That's the guys that you run into a firefight with without even thinking twice, you know. It's the guys that are telling you from the back, hey, look, y'all need to go over there. Well, no, they're shooting over there. You know, you need to come with us, you know. Right. That's the that's the guys that don't last, you know. Uh, so, like, if for, for those that are non-military or have any experience, so... <laughs> Like in your job, E at Dow, you would be considered a non-commissioned officer. You've been at Dow for what, nine, ten years? Thirteen years. Thirteen years. You know, you would be middle management or so. They got trainees and guys underneath you that come to you for training, that look up to you, and you know, uh, you would be that non-commissioned officer as far as like what Jordan was talking about. You know, a higher ranking enlisted side. Mm -hmm. Well, then he made the cross to corporate. Mm -hmm. You know where. You're riding a desk and you're telling them, all right, this is what we need, like a production lead mm -hmm. or something, some form or another yeah. like that, you know. They're not actually going in the unit and turn wrenches, you know. Mm -hmm. They're telling, they're passing it down, mm -hmm. you know. And that's kind of, you know, the big jump <clears throat> between, like, the civilian world and the military world, you know, is that was the biggest shock for me when I got out. It was, was the military is easy because there's a rank structure, you know. I go to you. I don't go to him. I go to you. You go to him. You know, well, when I when I got out and was working for the sheriff's office, I could go straight to my lieutenant anytime I needed, you know, and I never did. I'd always go to the corporal, then the sergeant, and then, the, you know, and they were like, look, whenever you got a problem, just go talk to the lieutenant. I'm like, you know, that was so far against everything that I have ever learned in my adult life. 
Like, no, I'm supposed to go to my direct chain of command, you know, my direct supervisor, you know. Um, but, yeah, <clears throat> you know, that's that's the big deal. When you see somebody that is in a position where they don't need to go hands-on, they don't need to be in the field with their guys, they don't, and they still do it anyway, you know, that's a big deal. You know, that's that leadership principle that's not taught. You know, that's you have to already have that, that want and ability to be out there with your guys. You know? yeah, I mean, it, and it, it's just like everything else. There's a big difference between being in a leadership position and actually being a leader. Absolutely. And, sure. and it's not just in the military, but I mean, you know, just like you were referring to yeah. at, at where I work at Dow or um, I mean, just anywhere like that. People that go through the ranks and they turn wrenches and they open up chain valves and they sweat on the side of you. They go to battle with you, basically. Right. You know, when they do go through the ranks and get to that, it's just that automatic extra respect for that person because you know he's been through it all and he would probably yeah. still go back and do yeah, it you know, whether you asked him or not. It's, it's, it's kind of like that saying that I would never ask you to do anything that I couldn't do myself. Yeah. You know, And I'm sure there's guys you work with that you would never second guess anything they tell you to do because you know that if they got their tools and went out there, they mm-hmm. could do it better than anybody else yeah. in the unit. You know Exactly. You know, it's, it's perfect. So uh, a friend of mine, you, know, you remember my friend Aaron Phillips? Uh, I know y'all had a little brief interaction many moons ago. He's in the uh, Marines and everything. And I remember, <coughs> I don't remember if you were at my house one day or if we were somewhere all together and we had a little small conversation. And after... Uh, when you had left and him and I were talking, he was, and he, you know, he's military, so obviously he knows, but he was like, no, he's like, you know, you don't understand. Like, he's a full bird colonel. I was like, well, like, I get it, but I, you're right, I don't understand. Like, yeah, full bird colonel. Like, what exactly does that mean? He was like, well, I'm telling you, like, he was enlisted. Like, he, you know, and he goes through this same thing, and it didn't really dawn on me. I, I understand the way you're telling me that it's a big deal. I don't understand because I don't understand all that ranking thing. But when he refers to you as a full bird colonel, like what exactly does that mean? So the the, the rank insignia for a full bird colonel is it looks just like a so it's a that's so it's an eagle. Yeah. So there's there the the rank just below that is a lieutenant colonel, and it's a, a silver oak leaf cluster. Okay. So full bird just refers to you know the, what the rank insignia actually looks like. He's got the full bird on his chest. Yeah, yeah just, right, right. Not just the oak leaf. You know? Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> but yeah uh, so going off the full bird colonel, just, you know, so most people don't know, uh, I can speak for the Navy side, which it doesn't differ much from the, the Army side, is that uh, when you start getting to, so lieutenant, comer- lieutenant colonel or commander level, which is 03, right? 04. Four. For lieutenant colonel. Oh, four. Oh, four. I'm, oh, no, I'm sorry. Oh, five. Oh, five. Yeah, yeah. So, Lieutenant Colonel or, or um, Commander, uh, that is starting to be command-level leadership, as in, so I was in uh, a construction battalion in the Navy. Our commanding officer was uh, a commander, so he was a Lieutenant Colonel, rank, same rank, and he was over 660 men, you know, that was our, that was our top guy. So... Over him was our Commodore, which was a captain, or that's Colonel's side, which is a 06, right? O6. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, so when you hear like Colonel versus an 06, so Colonel is the rank, the 06 is the pay grade. The pay so, grade. like an 01, like, yeah. when Ray says a butter bar, that's, that's a newly commissioned officer 
um, second lieutenant. So in the Army, it's second lieutenant, first lieutenant. So the O would be... Um, Officer o, level. O one, yeah. O two, O three. So that's for administrative yeah. and pay purposes. Yeah. So, just, so, so it's easier to know. Like Colonel got to O six, which is the sixth level officer. Right. You know, what is there? O. What is a. So O seven is the general. So that's o the next. General, that would have been my next star, rank. So it goes to what nine? O nine yeah. is the highest you can get <clears throat> in the military structure, unless you're a staff. Uh, you know, a, a presidential staff leader or something like that. But 09 is pretty much all they have, and colonels are 06. Mm -hmm. So what happens at his level is, and he can speak more than that, is that you start to be over other commanding officers, as in, so our commodore, she was, she was a captain, which was a 06, and she was over four battalions. So she had four units that, re that she was in charge of, you know? That's the, the level of leadership we're getting at now. It's, uh, you know, there's not many of them. We had two captains on our whole base, you know. Uh, it's, it's a very small community, you know. So like Aaron was saying, when you, when you run into that guy that's a colonel or a general or something like that, they, they don't just make these guys, like, they don't come around like they do, like going through boot camp. I mean, I'm sure, how many guys do you know that you went to OCS with uh, that ended up, Colonel or better? There, I can think of maybe four <clears throat> that um, that got to got to be full. Yeah, maybe four full bird colonels out of a class of maybe thirty five. Right. And most of them, in fact, every single one of them have retired. Yeah, and that that right there in itself is uh, you know. I mean, think of anywhere you work. You know, you got 35 guys. How many stick around that long? You know, like, like granted, you get, it took you how long to make Colonel? Um, so I was 22 years right. to get to Lieutenant Colonel. Yeah. So yeah. it's not just, you don't just take a test and you become mm -hmm. this. Like, it takes yeah. time. You know, mm -hmm. you put in many, many years, you know, that just right there is another show, just the dedication, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to stick around. Now, granted, I think Colonel has a pretty badass job in the civilian world, too. We haven't talked about it at all. You know, it's a pretty important guy, uh, you know, for not just us, but the country in itself, you know. Uh, so kind of talking about some of that experience that will lead up into that work. Um, so... One of the things that I know and you and I've talked about a little bit is um, you had you have you were pretty responsible for a lot of things and during Katrina or after Katrina I should say. Yeah. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So on? we were we had finished our our mission in Iraq, um, and again my units uh, uh, not again but my unit was located in Chalmette, um at uh, Jackson Barracks. So. Anybody who knows about Katrina from, from Louisiana knows that uh, that area was wiped out. So my unit was wiped out. Um, more importantly, um, about 80% of my soldiers, and I, I went to Iraq with, um, with about 350 soldiers total. So, and even though I asked about the Katrina one, let's backtrack. Let's start, let's start in Iraq. Okay. That way we can kind of keep a little timeline. So tell us about your experience in Iraq. Uh, when you went there, things that might have happened, and then we'll kind of get back into that Katrina thing because this this is actually what I wanted to talk about, and I kind of okay. forgot that part. So, so you want to start with Iraq? Let's start, you want to start with, with Iraq. Kuwait. Oh, okay, well let's go to Kuwait first. All yeah, right, let's, all let's, right. So, um, 
So we flew into, so my unit and our, the 256 Infantry Brigade Combat Team, so my, my field artillery battalion, and a battalion size is, is generally 350 um, soldiers. Um, so we were in, I was a 155 self-propelled howitzer battalion. So like m- most people, most civilians confuse a tank versus a howitzer. I won't get into the technical differences, but uh, we ended up just bringing two of our, our howitzers to, uh, to Iraq with us. Um, but we landed in, in Kuwait at about 10 o'clock at night. And, uh, and when we arrived, it was 110 degrees, 10 o'clock at night. So that was uh, uh-huh. oh, yeah. huh? over 119 yeah. degrees at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was an eye opener unto itself, and I mean it was surreal. Um, you know, and again going back to those Vietnam vets, they they I never forgot what they taught me, and uh, and and never forgot those roots. And it's so I was thinking about you know my entire career, and you think about being in the military now these days, uh, a deployment's not it's not unusual at all. And multiple deployments, in fact. But this was the first time, you know, for me, uh, in my 22 years, 23 years, whatever it was at that point, that now, you know, from being a private in that unit, now I'm the guy in charge of that entire unit, and we're going to war. Um, in fact, let me back up just a little bit. Um, we were at the, the National Training Center in the Mojave Desert uh, in California, and that's the, the combat training center. So it's where you, it is the place where you go to learn all the knowledge, skills, and abilities that's going to help you survive on a battlefield. So they replicate um, that environment to the extent possible. I mean, you're in the Mojave Desert. You're dealing with the heat, all of, the, all of those elements. And they hire um, um, Iraqi citizens who work for, for a company called Titan. So they serve as the... Um, role players so they role play uh, Iraqi citizens and they have a variety of roles but what's interesting is their their culture and their structure if you will uh, remains intact so even though they're role playing the imam once they get off duty is in charge of all those Iraqi people Um, and I remember at the end of the day uh, on a regular basis once once the scenario from the military was through, I would go to the Iraqi village where all the um, the Iraqi citizens who work for this uh, this company were sleeping out in the out in the field with us, and I'd sit down. And I'd say, "Okay, you know, the scenario's over. You know, we're, that's behind us now. Tell me what I need to know to help my soldiers survive on the battlefield." And um, it was it was an eye opener. They said, first of all, trust no one," and they gave me the the names of their personal relatives who were still in Iraq, and they said, this is how you contact them. Don't trust anyone in between. If you find yourself in, in serious trouble, this is where you go, and they'll help you out. Um, but don't trust anybody else. So it was, it was really interesting uh, because we had tons of training, watching videos, and we had you know, a lot of um, senior-ranking officers and high-ranking uh, non-commissioned officers give us speeches and we had PowerPoint presentations out of the wazoo saying this is what it's like and we had a lot of cultural awareness stuff um, so it you know now we're now we're actually flying over there so I'm thinking back on all those experiences uh, training on how to do bilateral negotiations uh, uh, all the cultural norms and you know which hand you eat with shake with and all that kind of stuff 
So I mean, my, your mind's going a, a million miles an hour, and uh, and you're just you're wiped out actually going over there because um, there was no free time to speak of. And then for for senior leaders, you know, when your soldiers are off, you're you're constantly thinking about what's the next thing that I need to do, what I need to be prepared for. Um, and, and that was absolutely necessary because at the end of the day, all these all these all these people were dependent upon me to make the right decisions under the right circumstances. And and my goal was to go there, accomplish the mission, and bring back every one of those soldiers back to their family members. So all that stuff's going through my mind, and we land in Kuwait at 10 o'clock at night, and I said, this, this is really gonna happen. You know, this is real. No more, no more war fighter stuff, no more scenarios and all that stuff. Uh, it's boots on the ground, as we, as we like to say which means that you're gonna be in the, in the heat of the action. You're not sitting behind some desk, you're not playing some computer game. Your life is on the line every single day and particularly from a leadership standpoint, um, you make the wrong decision, other people could pay for it. To me, that was gonna be unacceptable. So we stayed in Kuwait for, I think it was about a week or so. So it was there where you build up your, your combat power. So all of our, all of our equipment was, uh, was shipped over. Uh, so you had to wait for all of your equipment to get there. And at that point in war, so that was September 2004 that uh, we landed in Kuwait. So all of our equipment gets there, and now we're, we're starting to arm up, get everything. It's like, it's like packing to go on, on a trip. But, but our trip for us was we had um, close, it was probably 2,500, 3,000 soldiers, maybe a little bit more in our brigade combat team. So my unit was about 350 worth, uh, and there were multiple units, different types of units, infantry, armor, uh, cavalry, signal, et cetera, engineer, and that sort of thing. So this huge unit is getting prepared for what we call a tactical road march, which is like a long convoy from uh, Kuwait all the way to Iraq. So y'all drove it. Yeah, we, so we drove. Um, so to one of our funny experiences that we talked about when I first uh, walked in the door, uh, getting to the hip. Um, so we were in Kuwait and, uh, you know, we're eating at the dining facility, the DFAC. And, you know, I, I eat well, take care of myself. And I was eating tons of salads and drinking all the water and all that stuff. And little did I know, I found out later from, uh, from my doctor that was a sign to my unit that the water had a lot of protein in it. So lo and behold, I got constipated in a big way. I was telling Ray, I don't, I don't know if I tell you, you rock, but um, so it hit me like a rock one day. Um, so I went out to a latrine, and it's just, it's like, a, you know, it's a portalette. So um, it's, I don't know, 100-something degrees outside. Easily. So I, I go to this portalette to uh, um, do my business, and I'm sitting down, and there's nothing happening. Um, so I won't go into the gory details, but uh, I was in that portalet for about six hours, and because um, I couldn't go, and I'm, I'm, I mean, it's serious now. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm a little constipated, uh, but when you're in, in that hot box with those temperatures, at, at some point, I'm, I am totally drenched from head to toe, and I stripped down naked in, in a portalet, and I have, I open up the door, and I'm yelling for somebody to come give me some help. So my, uh, my doctor shows up, and I describe what's going on to him. So he's holding an IV bag outside of the portalette, and the tube's coming inside for me to, 
help facilitate my business. Oh, um, it's for those that don't know, a porter let in, so he said September, which is summer in Kuwait. If it's 110 degrees outside, it's probably 390 degrees inside <laughs> that porter, just to let you know. Uh, most species of animals cannot survive more than a few minutes inside that plastic box. It was uh, an eye-opener. Yeah, definitely a <clears throat> never-forget experience. I can guarantee you that. So I got through that, and um, we, were, we were doing all of our planning to go for our tactical road march. So once I finally got back to my room, I lay down, and, and I've, I've never felt more physically fatigued before. I mean, I felt like I had the flu. I just laid down in my bunk. And my executive officer, I mean, I had an important meeting where we were about to brief the, uh, the order of march for our units going up to, uh, to Iraq. And I just, I couldn't do it. I mean, I was absolutely wiped out. And so I just crawled in my bunk, let my XO take care of it. So that was a, a, a little fun offshoot from uh, um, the experience in Kuwait. And then we did our tactical road march, uh, which again was uh, all of our vehicles lined up. Um, and we drove up to Kuwait. Um, at that time, uh, all of our vehicles didn't have, they weren't up armored. So in other words, they were, they were soft skin vehicles. They didn't have, um, you know, high grade uh, ballistic protection. So we'd have to go to Arifjan, which was the original place where we landed in Kuwait, and just get sheet metal and whatever my, my NCOs could find. Sandbags. Excuse me, sandbags. And we were like the Beverly Hillbillies. I kid you not. We had, uh, they, were, they were cutting sheets of steel and attaching them to the sides of our vehicles. They had sandbags in the floorboards uh, across the top of the, um, uh, the hood of the Humvees and held down with, with huge ratchet straps. And I mean, some of the tires were like, you know, on an angle like this because we had so much weight in them. And um, so that's the way we drove up to, uh, to Iraq. And uh, we had some... We had some incoming uh, rounds uh, in route, a lot of small arms fire, and as soon as we got into Iraq, uh, there were mortar rounds coming in, so it's like, game on. You know, this is the real deal. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot I can talk about uh, our experiences in, uh, in Iraq, because, uh, so I'll just try to hit some highlights. So, some things that I'm really proud of was, one, we went there as a field artillery unit, so the, the majority of our careers, and there were guys in and had more time than I did, uh, we trained in field artillery, which is, again, technical stuff. It's, so it's an indirect fire system. I guess that's a difference I should talk about from, uh, from a tank to a howitzer. Well, so, in layman's terms, a howitzer is a big-ass gun. It's a big gun. So it looks like a tank, but it's, so it stays in position, and it fires you know, like 95 to 100 pound projectiles, you know, 13 miles downrange. And I brought only two of those with me. So that's what we train to do in the majority of our careers. But this wasn't that kind of fight. Um, so we were there for about three weeks and it became apparent that we weren't, that was not gonna be the preponderance of what we did. That was not gonna be our main mission. And four or five weeks into it, I, I changed from a field artillery battalion to a task force. To a, so a task force just means that you have different types of disciplines, uh, different types of units. Um, so I had uh, base defense of the Victory Base Complex. So it was in uh, the middle of Baghdad. So Baghdad University was right across the street, and we had to guard that, uh, that or protect that entryway. 
Uh, so I had 19 different companies from all over the United States that were attached to me. So I had infantry, armor, cavalry, signal, engineer, um, name a different type of unit, and they were all attached to me. So I went from 350 to close to 700 soldiers, and we had just about every mission that you can imagine. We had outside battle space, outside battle space meaning that uh, the victory-based complex and liberty-based complex that we protected held about 40,000 coalition forces. So all your civilian contractors, all the military units from all over the world were in this huge perimeter, and my unit was responsible for protecting about 75% of the border of it. So we did that. Um, we had outside battle space, so we would patrol out in the neighborhoods, protected the deck or uh, guarded the, uh, the deck of cards. So like Saddam Hussein, we knew we were the outer perimeter for protecting him uh, and some of the high-ranking uh, Iraqi prisoners. We ran a brigade interrogation facility, so it was like a jail that uh, would house um, anywhere from like, criminals who picked up off the street uh, in Iraq to, uh, to terrorists. And we would, they would be processed, and some of them we'd end up driving down to, um, to Abu Ghraib. Um, what else we do? So we, we delivered the first ballot boxes for, for the first ever uh, election in uh, Iraq's history. And uh, one of the things that we did, I'm really proud of, and, and all the credit goes to my soldiers, we did this program called Kids for Kids. So it originally was an NCO, this young sergeant who said, man, I want to I help the Iraqi kids. We saw how poor they were. I mean, we talk about poverty here in, in the United States. Just it, once you're over there, you, you the truly there. understand. Yeah, you understand what it's there. like. They were enclosed. It, it looked like if, if water got on them, they would just fall off of them. So they were really dirt poor. So our soldiers wanted to do something to help the, uh, you know, the local um, Iraqi kids. So their original intent was, hey, let's see if we can get some laptops sent from the United States. Um, and then they learned very quickly that the infrastructure uh, at that time just it didn't exist. So it changed from, hey, let's get electronic stuff to help bring them into the 21st century to they need, they need clothing, they need school supplies. And it just grew and grew. It was a program called Kids for Kids. You can probably Google it today. So um, thousands and thousands of pounds of uh, clothing and school supplies and stuff were sent from all over the world uh, to our unit, and they had huge connexes filled with all this stuff. So we'd go out into the local community, and of, and of course, you know, it's combat's going on, so we'd have to do our outer perimeter, then our inner perimeter, and... Uh, we would give free medical examinations to, uh, to, the, to the local nationals. Uh, so we'd bring the doctors out there and do, do free medical checks and all that sort of thing. And then for the, you know, for the little kids that were there, we'd hand out clothes and, uh, and book supplies and all that sort of thing. So um, I'm proud of that because we definitely made a difference in, you know, in those people's lives. And a lot of people, when they talk about combat and what they see on the on TVs, particularly back then, it was it's all gore and you know we're going there and killing people and that was, you know that was not the intent, no. you know, uh, so that that's was a very good thing. That's what they don't talk about on the, the humanitarian side. side. We can get into that. Yeah. Like our units, when we went to Iraq, you know, I was in a CB battalion. <clears throat> Most people have no idea what the CBs are. 
was the construction force. Well, we did have a security element where we did convoy security for gasoline and food and anything that needed to go from one base to another. But on the other side of it, we built schools. You know, we started infrastructure on a hospital. We right. dug water wells. We dug, you know, things that we were building were not to benefit the United States of America or us, you know. Our guys were going outside the wire, putting ourselves in harm's way to build things that we were leaving there for them, you know. But that's yeah. not, you know, right. we can get yeah, into that. Yeah, it's not newsworthy. But, but we can yeah. get that. So, uh, so I guess to transition to your, to your question about the Katrina thing. So we'd finished our mission in Iraq. And we were just, um, I remember we were sitting in a big conference room and we were just waiting for a C-130 flight from Iraq back to Kuwait. And remember I explained that on our tactical road march there, we had in small arms fire and there were mortars that are landing as we drove into Iraq. Uh, so we're, we're watching Katrina uh, land in New Orleans and um, 80% of my soldiers lost everything that they owned. And it was... Uh, uh, their pucker factor was up pretty high, just trying to get in touch with their family members because during Katrina, it was, communications was down. Now we're in a foreign country, we're in a combat zone, and they're trying to you know get in touch with their family members. And it probably took a few days for that to happen, but uh, they were in, eventually able to find out that their families got out with basically what they could put in their car. And one of my soldiers said he was watching Fox News and um, they were showing flooding at that point. And one of my soldiers said, uh, hey, you see that rooftop that's just above the water? That's my house. I guess I got a little bit of work to do when I get home. Jeez. So it just said vimes about their, their character as, uh, as soldiers. And I told them before we left, you have no choice but to be a better man, a better husband and father when you got back because you survived this. You are not a victim of anything. You are a champion of life and in the worst of circumstances. So we get back to... Um, to Louisiana. Can you say that one more time, please? Just say that one more time. We are champions of life. Yeah, what, what you just expressed to them about not playing the victim. I like what you just said. Say that one yeah, more time. Uh, yeah. Or, or we, we, just, we weren't victims of anything. Yeah. It's like, and I can say that from my own personal experiences. I'm not a victim of anything. I think your perspective of life uh, is directly in line with uh, what, your, what your beliefs are and, um, and what's important to you. So, you know, I'm big on isms. Mm -hmm. um, so one of my favorites is, uh, is, a, is a quote from uh, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, a German philosopher who says, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. Mm -hmm. So it's just like in, in CrossFit and physical fitness, you, your growth comes from experiencing something difficult and how you view that and how you work through that psychologically and, and emotionally is your building block for you becoming a better person and, um, and all the things that you do. So there's no separation between like, uh, those experiences and who you are as a person. Um, and, and my soldiers got that. And that was the cool thing about that whole experience is we didn't leave there saying, oh, my God, we're, we, we had it so tough. You know, we were away from our families for 18 months. It was we went there for a good mission. We made a positive difference in those people's lives. We did the best that we could under those circumstances, and now it's time for us to go back home. And just as my soldier articulated very well, in the light of his personal loss, he had that right perspective and said, hey, I guess I have a little work to do. Mm -hmm. The man lost everything, yeah. 
And that's, those are the words that come out of his mouth. I mean, how profound is that? So when we got back to Louisiana, uh, as soon as we had the opportunity, um, I let all my soldiers go out on the, uh, in, in the local community and, and, um, and, you know, buy a new vehicle. And, that was, and they were like little kids because now they, they, were, they were able to go buy something new. It was, it was a fresh start, you know, along with that, with that mindset. We're not victims. It's now, hey, this is cool. This is, I, there's something that I can do for myself and do for my family. So um, I was blessed and, and very fortunate that I didn't have any personal damage to my house. But knowing that all of my, that again, 80% of my soldiers lost everything, um, um, and thank goodness to the, to the government, they allowed my soldiers and all of us really the opportunity to stay on active duty orders and, uh, and work uh, Hurricane Katrina relief. I didn't have to, um, but to me it was just a principle. My soldiers lost everything, so I'm gonna do some work as well. So I remember being at home for a couple of days and, uh, and I told my wife and kids, hey, I'm gonna take a little bit of leave, take some time off, uh, but then I plan on going on um, getting back on orders and, um, and doing something to help with the, with the hurricane. So I got a call from uh, the general's aide. So my boss was a, was a two-star general. He was our um, brigade commander. And uh, it was Chief Parham that called me up. And he said, uh, hey, Colonel Jones, I uh, just want to let you know that uh, General Basilica said that uh, you need to get your ass up here because he wants you to be the G3 for Task Force Pelican. So G, G3, G relates to a, a certain level of, of, uh, of soldiers. Uh, three means operations. Um, Task Force Pelican was the, the Louisiana National Guard being in charge of the response for Hurricane Katrina. So uh, the National Guardsmen who did not deploy were responding initially. Uh, but when we came in, the, the brigade, we were basically gonna take over. So he was saying, I want you to be in charge of operations for um, uh, for that for hurricane relief, so um, it's I said, well, does the general know that I'm on leave? And I can't believe those words came out of my mouth. Like I'm going to tell a two-star general yeah, I'm on leave. What? Yeah. Um, so anyway, so I threw all my stuff in a in a in a footlocker and uh, you know hightailed it up to where headquarters was, and um, so I'm sitting in this big staff meeting. So General Basilica has all the commanders from all over the United States. And he sees me there and he goes, hey, Jordy, what are you doing here? Um, and I said, I'll talk to you after the meeting, sir. So he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I got a call from Chief Parham. And he said, uh, hey, get your ass up here because you're going to be the G3. And uh, he said, no, no, no. The message was call Colonel Jones, ask him if he's interested and available. I would like for him to be the G3. So I said, look, sir, I've already, already talked to my family about it. And um, I'm good to go. Let I'll be the G3 to help get through the emergency phase of this thing, but then I need a little time off. So um, in 18 months, I'd seen my family like three weeks, my, you know, my, my three weeks leave. That's how much time I'd spent with them. So, you know, during my entire career, uh, I was a traditional soldier, so I'd maintained my civilian career. Um, so I was looking for a little bit of time off before I went back to work again. Uh, so that's what I did. I was basically responsible for determining where the um, uh, 22,000 soldiers that uh, came to Louisiana from all over the United States uh, and uh, four U.S. territories where they were going to be deployed um, in the states. Um, so I did that for, I guess, about a month or so. 
and then just went back to my civilian job. And then somewhere down the line, I guess, kind of transitioning to the, the civilian side, um, the BP oil spill happened. And um, because of my experience with the oil spill and the National Guard responding to, to that um, disaster as well, I was the National Guard's liaison initially with the U.S. Coast Guard. So I remember getting a call from uh, um, from a one-star general saying, hey, we, we want you to come on and be the liaison with the Coast Guard because they knew the company that I worked for, um, I taught exercise design, conduct, and evaluation and held um, uh, oil spill exercises for, for my company. So we were the, um, then it was the, the maintenance and operations company for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, uh, which is run by the Department of Energy, so where the U.S. oil reserves are maintained. So I would, um, I would conduct these, these large oil spill exercises to replicate if you have them, what you're supposed to do. So because of that experience and me being a guardsman, I was the ideal candidate to do that. So um, I did that for, for a good while and then uh, went back to, uh, to work. So yeah. I guess a good uh, break for you guys to ask something else. Yes, I mean, it. obviously it speaks for itself. It's just entertaining just to hear some of these things, especially from somebody who, you know, I never had that military experience. Uh, and I know Ray probably had a little flashbacks himself from being out there, uh, just as you spoke about that. Um, but if you, if then, unless you have any other, then did you want to talk about the military? Um, I think it's just, it just speaks volumes for like, so, I mean, I did six and a half months out there, uh, you know, and what most people don't realize is that, you know, our guys are not living in ideal conditions. You know, you could say, oh, you live in a camp with 40,000 coalition forces, and you think, well, whenever you're home, it's you're not at war or whatever, you know. When whenever you're inside camp, you're still not at home. Like, you know, we lived in plywood buildings, you know. It was it wasn't the greatest, but you, you make it you you make it what it is, you know. And I, I have friends to this day that we speak every single day and I'm sure you have leadership guys that you talk to or your community your community of, of people that you served with that you're still in good contact with or can pick up the phone at any time. Uh, but to come home and walk right into the shitstorm of Katrina that those guys had to deal with, you know, that's, to me, is, is unbelievable to have to worry about that after 18 months of, uh, of serving over there. And, you know, I'm sure you had guys that they never went home. They stayed there the whole time. Well, no, we actually, so the 18 months was the amount of time spent away from home. So we did a six-month train up in the United States at, yeah, at, uh, at Fort Hood in uh, the Mojave Desert in California. And then, so we did one year in Baghdad. But, you know, to that extent of, uh, like, on any given day, you never, you never knew if you were going to, you know, when your number was going to be called up because um, we had people, we had incoming mortars and rockets inside the area where we lived. And, in fact, um, um, just one brief experience. Uh, there was a, there was a rocket that came in um, in the little the little tent that was used for working out, and so one of my soldiers was working the front desk. You know, just rudimentary um, weights and stuff. And so when the rocket landed inside the uh, inside the tent, there was a, a female civilian who was there. She was killed immediately, and my soldier who was working the front desk happened to bend over at the exact time that round impacted and bent over. And as soon as he bent over, a huge fragment from that rocket flew right over where he was standing. 
and just blew a hole right through the uh, through the tent. And if he was, had he not been over when he did, then he would absolutely would have died. So in many instances, your living or dying hung on fractions of a second or fractions of an inch. And and you think about it is, you know, he, he wakes up that morning takes a shower, goes to his post, which is he works the desk at the gym. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a non-combat, non-forward combat position. You know, he's thinking, hey, another easy day. And it just shows you how being in that atmosphere, you know, we and, and we become complacent at times. You know, I, I can speak for, for things that we we did that you don't realize that at any given moment, something could come over that fence. And, right you know, change the outcourse of your life, you know, it's just, that's, that's the things that, you know, most people that haven't never lived in that scenario could, can't appreciate to the extent that, you know, yeah, our guys do deployments over there and, you know, some, some places, some camps are a lot better than others, but it's still, it's still constantly on your mind, you know, it's the right. mental where, and fatigue if it's not the physical amenities that you live in you know like we didn't live in the greatest amenities but it was the constant thought of man at any time any day it could, something could happen you know and that that's the things that you know most people don't they don't think about when it comes to oh yeah. so you went to Iraq man so what was the worst thing that you've seen you know like I'll say for the most part I had a pretty vanilla experience you know I was never forward deployed outside the wire in a combat situation we convoyed but it was never you know I had no indirect fire I had no anything like that but the fact that we lived in that for like what started being scary is that it started becoming normal you know and like I said we had a pretty vanilla experience it's when it happens to our, our brothers and sisters out there when it's not vanilla. They get incoming rounds every day. They're under fire every day. Yeah, that's, that becomes the normal right. life, you know? Yeah. That's that's what's not talked about. You know, we don't want to talk about those those that those scenarios, but it's out there, you know. It happens every single day. Yep. You know, and, and being a, a junior enlisted guy, never you know, we've never taken into consideration of the facts of just like you said. You know, not only are you tasked with the mission, but you're tasked with how we're going to do the mission and bring everybody home. And if that doesn't happen, that's on you ultimately. You know, it ultimately yeah. goes up the chain to the top, you know. Uh, and thankfully, I've never had to experience, you know, anything like that. You know, I've never had guys get injured or anything like that in it. And me having to go, why did this happen? You know, well, and... and and let me just say, as I'd be remiss if I didn't, since we're talking about the experience there. So I didn't bring everybody home. So um, Sergeant Lee, Mike, Miles, Godbolt um, was killed by um, vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. And so I never knew him, but he was one of my soldiers. He was tasked out to another unit, which means that he was, uh, he was a part of another unit while we were there. Um, so when he died, again, I didn't know him. I had, you know, 350-plus soldiers. I had to find out who he was as a person, as a soldier, and, um, and I had to speak about him at the memorial service. And it was one of the most, most challenging 
and difficult things I've ever had to do in my life um, because I had to honor him for, for who he was as a person. Um, and I had to find out who he was. And it, it, it really put a lot of things in perspective. You know, imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah. that's like they say. That's why you make the big bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. <clears throat> yeah, for all the good times and the bad times. <clears throat> so before we go on to um, some more CrossFit okay. stuff, I just wanted to say to the both of you that thank you for your service, and we do appreciate uh, everything that y'all sacrificed, including your families and everything else too. So thank, thank you, you for that. Um, so let's just kind of transition into some CrossFit stuff, stuff that, that I know a lot about, that we all know a lot about. Um, so, you know, this whole military story and building up the background can really give people a, an idea of your mental toughness. Because I know that's one of the things that I've always respected in you is that um, when the going got tough, you just, you just couldn't kill a colonel. You couldn't hold him down. Hmm. It didn't matter what it was or how long it took or how heavy it was. You'd be damned. Uh, by, if, if you weren't going to be able to finish that task or just give it everything you had. And it was kind of fun for us sometimes, too, because we're like, well, we know Colonel's going to do it. Like, you know, we'd get out there and you may be one another uh, lagging behind because you weren't quite as fast as some of us. But, but, man, you were just straight killing everything that you could. And, and it was just always fun to kind of cheer you on and all. And one thing that kind of comes to mind is one of the dumbest competitions that we ever went to, the Biloxi Blues. I know you all know about oh, that man. one. Uh, but it was a competition we did in uh, Biloxi, I think it was. Well, yeah, it was Biloxi like last week. week. It was like the four-year anniversary last week. Oh, it was? Really? Three-year yeah. anniversary. Oh, no yeah. kidding. Uh, but it was just, it wasn't run very well. It was freezing cold. It was misting all day. and uh, So you were in the, the master's division. And I remember we just, man, it, it was all day long. And we wound up running out of daylight. That people turning on cars so that we can yeah, have light right. to try to finish all this up, and when it all when all the dust settled, you were the champ. Like you, you knocked everybody out. You were first place, and then they kind of uh, it, it made me laugh because when you went, you know, you don't hold back any punches, and you're gonna and I respect that. You're gonna tell somebody what's on your mind, and when we were kind of upset because the guy that was running the competition, he was just didn't do a good job we'll put it that way and the scoring system and the ranks and all this other stuff he had all kind of stuff discombobulated and you went and talked to him just talk to see like what was the deal and and i think he wound up telling you that he, they were going to mail y'all some medals or they're going to yeah, try right. to figure out and colonel was like no no buddy like you know, th- we should be getting them right now you you could take that medal damn it shove it up your ass <laughs> I, I don't remember if that was the exact words but I just remember that whole uh, dynamic that whole day was a complete disappointment <clears throat> other than Colonel Waxman forward everybody in his division yeah. you know um, so I'll talk about my favorite Colonel uh, competition which uh, it might have been your first competition was uh, Deep South Shootout at the Lamar oh, and Dixon nah. Expo yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I call it the infamous overhead squat wide yeah. You know? So as most people, nah. know, most people don't yeah. know, Colonel Jones has, um, if there's zero mobility, then it's right under zero mobility in one of his shoulders. So overhead squat, um, holding the lockout position is not going to happen. Yeah, almost impossible. Um, so first wide goes down, Colonel sitting well in first place. 
uh, second workout consists of, I don't know if it was like a 600 meter sprint and then max rep overhead squats. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the scoring was how many overhead squats you do. So it doesn't matter how fast you do the right. run. So three, two, one, go, they sprint. Colonel beats everybody in the run by like 50 seconds or something ridiculous like that. And he comes in and just looks at the bar for (laughs) seven minutes. It was eight minutes. He's just looking at the bar and his poor judge is like, man, you maybe want to try him? And he's like, no, like it's it's not going to do any good, Mm -hmm. you know? And other competitors are just kind of looking at him and, you know, we're on the other side of the fence and like, we're just like, did you see how far he beat everybody by the run? Like, you know, we're trying to, make, trying to make it the most out of what it could. So he actually took a zero for the second wide. And then we go throughout the day, and I think you still ended up placing, like, um, top five or six or something like that, you know, from actually having a zero day, a zero mm-hmm. wide, to still placing fairly high in the competition. That's all right. Um, I, I smoked him on that uh, that sandbag um, chest overhead. Chest of overhead. Yeah. And then the, Which uh, I think was a, <clears throat> like a fifth wide or something. Yeah, that, well, that was a floater wide for that floater one. They wide, also yeah. had the wide with the, uh, the barbell jump squats that Ooh. they had guys falling on the ground from 45-pound jump squats, you know? And it just, it just shows that, you know, Going into a wide, you face adversity. Like Colonel Lou going into that workout, like the odds of me getting an overhead squat with this weight is zero. Yeah. And then still making the most out of the day and damn near getting on the podium after getting a zero, you know. For most of us, if you catch a zero in any competition, mm-hmm. it's over with for you, you know. And to still fight back, you know, it's pretty it's pretty good. You know, that's just that was my favorite Colonel wide is just yeah. watching him look at that bar for seven minutes and everybody else just looking at him like, mm-hmm. what's wrong with this guy? Like, is he messing with us? Like, what's yeah. going on? And then just to kind of touch on that too is, you know, Colonel's support system, you know, you know, your, your, your family and all like they'll, that's how we know your family is through CrossFit because right. the girls would show up, your wife would show up, you know, your son would be there sometimes. And it was just great to see that you would have that extra support. You know, we were all your CrossFit family, everybody right. knew Colonel and everybody was always rooting and raring for you, you know, but it was just good to have your family there too. Cause you know, our families go with us too, but they're involved in CrossFit. So even when, even though she's in, my wife's involved in CrossFit, um, you know, and her and my kids are there, it, it makes me feel great because, you know, they're there to support me. But, you know, it just was nice to see your family, even though they don't, weren't doing CrossFit as much. They dabbled a little bit here and there, but, you know, yeah, right. uh, but you know what I'm saying. And another thing I, I thought about too, that kind of cracks me up another funny colonel story was i don't remember which competition it was and i don't even remember if you had competed in this one or not but you were with us for sure uh we went somewhere it might have been one in slidell and we all went to hooters after oh yeah so we had a big old <laughs> group less advantage yeah we had a big group of people that yeah. went and sat down and um we all ordered drinks and you know we were waiting forever for our drinks we waited forever for our food and you know, we're kind of getting antsy. We're getting a little upset, but, you know, we're not really letting it get us because we had a good day and we were all celebrating and having a good time. And then all of a sudden we're like, man, where's Colonel? And we're kind of looking around and we look over and <laughs> Colonel damn near has the manager like pinned against the wall, nose to nose, like telling this guy, and we're like, what the hell is he doing? Like, what's going on right now? And uh, so not long after that, we got our drinks and we started to get our food and yeah, he's had that lesson in, in management. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, that was some good times. 
Uh, so yeah, that was true. So outside of CrossFit, one thing that I want to talk about is um, is the Tough Mudder. So many moons ago, quite a few years ago, uh, you had told me something about you were going. I believe it was in Texas. Was it Texas? Yeah, you right. Went to a Tough Mudder. Mm-hmm. You were going to Texas to do a Tough Mudder, and I had never heard of it before. And all I remember is you telling me that it was 13 miles, and then at the end you would get shocked. Right. And I was like, who wants to do that? That's just stupid. Like, 13 miles, I'm a runner, and I don't want to run 13 miles. And number two, I don't want to get shocked. So, so I, I remember telling you something about, like, dude, that's, that's crazy. You're like, well, no, no, no. You know, I teamed up with some guys, and we did this, and we did that. It's like, that's just the dumbest. Like, no, I'm not doing that. But leave it up to Colonel. Colonel's the guy who's going to go and do it. That's great. Well, fast forward. They got one in Florida coming up. So you decided to talk to us. And uh, the majority of us were like, no, we're not doing it. That's you. You go ahead and do it. I'm not trying to get shocked or run 13 miles. But the more I thought about it, you know, even though I knew that you were tougher than me and you could do all those things, I was just like, well, why can't I do that? So, I, you know, we started talking about it. We had some interest from some of the other guys in the box. And uh, we decided to go ahead and, and give it a shot. So um, that made it a lot more fun was that, you know, we were doing something that you did everything that we asked of you in CrossFit. You know, and now it was our turn to say, hey, let's go follow Colonel and go do this because he's not going to lead us astray. So we all signed up for it. It's in Florida. It was like February-ish when we yeah. get over there. Yeah. <clears throat> we get to the Tough Mudder. And I'm already getting a little nervous because it's 13 miles. I'm going to get shocked at the end. And it's 30-something degrees. And there's Arctic animal. There's water. (laughs) There's water everywhere. There's an ice bath. There's all these things. And I'm just like, what the hell have I got myself into? But, you know, because we all trusted in you and you had such great leadership and we knew that you weren't going to do anything to lead us astray, we all just kind of said, screw it and just... We got out there and it was cold. It was rough. Yeah, I'm not gonna a, lie about that was it. A good crew was, too, right? But yeah, had, uh, yeah, we had a bunch. They had a bunch of people. We had a from bunch. Yeah. It was, and I still have that picture on my on my phone of the dashboard when we showed up. Yeah, Y'all thought it was crazy because me. we got there like an hour before it mm-hmm. started, and it was 29 degrees. Yeah, wasn't that like the week Wyatt was born or something? That's why we we couldn't go. Something. No, I think that mm-hmm. was the the next year. You had, you had some conflict. Yeah, that you texted me at like six thirty in the morning, and it was thirty four degrees yeah. or something outside. And I think it was like, it was like the picture was like, this is gonna be a great day. And I texted them, and I think it was like Nicole doesn't isn't getting out of the truck or yeah. something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it just you know, it, I, I go I go back to the leadership thing. You know, we were all nervous. We didn't really know what we were getting into, but. You know, you just took a hold of everything. You told us what to expect. You had you made a list of things that we should bring, things that we uh, are going to need to use while we're out there. Get all the. I mean, it was just it was a great experience. Yeah, and, it was. And ever since then, we've done we've done three more since then. Is that yeah. right? Two yeah. or three more since then, and we're looking to go do another one this year. And uh, it's just it's just a fantastic time. Uh, another thing that you get into is the go ruck. Uh, now, I, I haven't been able to, we, Nicole and I had signed up the last time when we did it, but um, we had like a wedding or something come up, so we weren't able to do it, but 
So you've done two, correct? You've done the gold yeah, the, the dark light and the gold rock heavy. Yeah, and explain that to us again. Um, so the Go Ruck, it's um, it's run by guys in the military. Most of them, um, you know, the elite within the military, uh, special ops, Delta, uh, SEALs. You know, the, the the really the elite within the military, and it's it's like an obstacle course run in an urban environment, um, and it's designed for um, really to to teach, to expose civilians to what the military goes through and in, in, um, in physical fitness and, and how you build esprit de corps through you know very difficult circumstances and, and this one being this uh, obstacle course uh, on an, in an urban environment. So there, there are different levels. Um, the light is I think four or five hours um, and I think maybe six miles, something like that. Um, but it's very physically demanding. And then there's the, the next level, which I think is the go ruck tough. Um, but you start off, um, first they, they smoke you from the very beginning. Smoking means that, you know, they just like do grass drill like in the military. So you run in place, you hit the ground, do a bunch of push-ups. They say, get on your back, start doing sit front, back, go, do Indian runs, sprints back and forth to just physically get you worn out from the beginning. So we, um, the Go Ruck Tough was at uh, Ottoman Park. We showed up around, we had a report at, at uh, 10 o'clock at night. Um, and you have to have uh, a certain uh, standard weight in your rucksack that you carry. So um, I think I carried 35 or 40 pounds, I forgot what it was. But your, that rucksack can never touch the ground the whole time. So we show up at 10 o'clock at night and the first thing they do I said, look, I don't remember how cold it was, but it was cold as all get out. Uh, and I said, there's no way they're going to let us get wet because somebody's going to get frostbite. First thing we did was they made us jump in that fountain <laughs> right in front of the museum. Yeah. I said, it's on now. Mm -hmm. It's time to go. Um, and then they, they marched us through City Park, uh, and there was a telephone pole. We had to pick up that telephone pole, and we walked from City Park all the way to the river. And the pole can never touch the ground. So there were probably 35 of us. So, you know, on both sides and people varying height and abilities and strengths and all that stuff. Um, I don't want to go through all the stuff, but basically it's, um, you're just physically wiped out. Um, that one lasted, uh, it was 21 miles and lasted over uh, 11 hours. Uh, again, the only time the, the telephone pole touches the ground is when they stop for you to do some other physical exercise. Mm -hmm. um, like um, when we got uh, on the riverfront, one person lays on their back, they put their rucksack on, uh, on their chest, and you're leaning over them, and you basically have to pull them for like 20 yards, and then you switch going back, and then you have sprints with, with your rucksack on and, and that sort of thing, so... Uh, yeah, just right up your alley. Yeah, so it's, it's stuff, yeah. fun stuff. What about the stairs? I remember you told me about the stairs. Yeah, so it, uh, well, part of it is like towards the end, we're about eight hours in, and this sort of leads towards the hip thing. Um, so I've been having problems with it, which I thought was my hip flexor for a long period of time. Uh, it was starting to hurt a lot. And, um, you know, because of just doing a lot of physical exercise and carrying that much weight, over a period of time, well, that many hours into it, 
We're carrying a telephone pole, and if you're not carrying a telephone pole, you're holding your rucksack over your head. Um, or they would, they would uh, again, so these are military guys running it, and they want to teach the lesson of you never leave your buddy behind. So they would just point out a few people in the, in the line and say, you're a casualty, which meant some two or three other people had to pick you up and carry you. So you're either carrying the telephone pole, you're holding your ruck up over your head, you are carrying somebody, or you're in the back of the line, and they were doing Indian races. For people that don't know it, it's, you know, you, last person sprints all the way to the front of the line, and you just keep doing that. But the difference was that we had 35-pound sandbags. So you were carrying the pole, rucksack, you were carrying somebody, or you're doing Indian runs at the end. So about eight hours into it, my right leg just it just stopped, um, and I had to. I was wearing five eleven pants, and I, and I just I had to grab the front of my pants and just pull my leg for it to go forward because it wasn't it wasn't going anywhere. And I remember one of the NCOs who was running. He yeah, he knew I was military. He just say, "You're gonna make it." And I said, "It's still attached, brother. I'm gonna make mm-hmm. it." Um, but it's you know, just to me, it's like you know. I remember this uh, this saying in. Uh, uh, on the walls in our high school football locker room, said having fun is doing hard things well. Um, I mean, I, I love doing that, and that's one of the reasons why I love CrossFit because um, everybody's the same walking in there. You know, in the days when when uh, when the wad is real tough and people go, "Oh shit, I don't want to do this," I'm, my thought is, "Why are you here? Mm-hmm. This is this is your challenge. This is why you. This is where you learn how to push yourself and what your limits are." And, and the further you can push yourself, the, you know, the further your, your boundaries are and you just, there's nothing you can't overcome. And it translates to how you handle stress and pressure uh, in your life and how you interact with people. And it's just, to me, it's all, it's all intermingled. And so that's the cool thing about doing it. Yeah. We have a lot of people that kind of get in their own way when it comes to CrossFit. Like we'll tell them. You know, I know you can do this if you only do this, but they they convince themselves that they can't, and that you know that's a challenge for Ray and I yeah. a lot of times talking to a lot of the athletes. But I kind of enjoy that because when you get somebody to do something that they swore and be damned that they couldn't do, right? You know, it's it's just a it's a great feeling because they acting like it was me that did it, and I'm like no, like you all I did just, was tell you that you can do it. You the one that that proved right, me right, you know, and you just give them the tools to. Succeed, yeah. you know, and they, they Absolutely. go, you know, you know, it's always been a saying, you know, uh, character is revealed through times of adversity, not, you know, what we do is we basically give people in times of adversity every single day, you know, and it's, it's whether, you know, fight or flight, you know, right. most times, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, I mean, the things like when we get into like Murph and we get into the things I mean, we did Murph in Toronto downpour two years ago. You know, and I think we had almost 50 people mm-hmm. show up for that, you know, and these are people that would never normally do Murph ever on a normal day, uh, doing it in, it rained four inches or something like that in the hour and a half of, of that time, you know, and it's, uh, and you know, and it's raining and it's got water on the road and everything and they went anyway, you know, and that's, you know, that makes me happy for, for what we do, you know, but that's just your norm, you know. Like, I remember with first conversations we had, you know, you showing me pictures running the Crescent City Classic with 80-pound vest on or whatever it was that day, you yeah, know, the, boots and the you, run. you know. 
Breeze run with a with a weight vest, you know, and that's that was one of my first impressions is telling Dara. I was like, look, I said we have a guy that just joined. And I said his name's uh, Jordan. I think he was in the military, you know. I didn't even know at the time, you know. And I was like, look, there's nothing we're gonna throw at this guy that's gonna break him, you know. Like we could try, but it's not gonna happen, you know. That's just initial, you know, uh, observation of when you came into the gym, and you know, five years later, that still hasn't changed. And now we just know, like. You, you'll come into the gym now. You've, we've been dealing with your hip for a, a few months now. So you'll come in and, you know, you make, I know Thursday and Fridays have been your days. So you come in on Thursday, which is notoriously a recovery day for us. And I'll go, uh, go look at Monday's workout or Tuesday's because I pick whatever was the hardest day out of the week for us. And that's what I throw to you because I know that's what you want when you come in. I got two days this week. Yeah, well, we did 150 burpees yesterday, so it's probably going to be what you're looking to do, you know? And I'm excited for you now is because now we're, we've replaced the damaged goods, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to have a good hip, so I'm pretty excited to see. So I guess with that, we can go into what's next. Yeah, so, you know, you know yeah. so for you kind of touched on it a minute ago about how your leg wasn't working too good on the, the go ruck, and for a long yeah. time, we were working with you for hip flexor issues, hamstrings, quads, just anything that we can do, wrap up your leg real good, some things, you know, but, you know, we're not medical doctors. So when the things didn't really go right, you decided to go to the doctor and, and actually get it checked out. So tell us what, what they wound up telling you. Yeah, so I was, I guess it may sound strange, but I was pleased to hear that the, the root cause was um, of my problems with the right leg was um, there was arthritis uh, on the femoral head of, of my right leg. I had a torn labrum. Uh, there was no cartilage um, in between the femoral head and, the, and the, uh, the hip socket. And there was arthritis riddled, you know, in the hip socket itself. So I was like, okay, cool. Because I was thinking, man, am I wimping out? Am I, uh, you know, because as you get older, you make excuses for yourself and to yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you just become more relaxed and say, well, you know, I deserve a break. And, and that's just, that's human nature. Um, but I don't ever want to get to that point in, in any aspect of my life. So it was just pleasing to find out, well, this is the reason why my level of performance has been degrading over a period of time. Because it frustrated the hell out of me. I mean, you know, I, I know what my, I've heard a pretty good idea of what my strengths and weaknesses are and what my limits are for my age. Um, but it's not going to stop me from pushing as hard as I can. And I know the difference between working pain associated with muscle growth versus pain that's going to work, that's going to be, you know, one step towards injury. So when he said, hey, you have this problem, I thought, okay, cool. So now I don't feel so bad about my performance mm -hmm. going down. And my first thought, he said, well, so the doctor said, um, he just saw an x-ray of it. We didn't do an MRI where you get that level of detail. And he said, you need a new hip. And I said, okay, that's not happening, dude. What's next? Mm -hmm. I said, I'm too young and I'm too active and I have too much responsibility in my, in my civilian job to be away for a long period of time. So what's the next thing below that? And he said, well, you know, I can shave down the, uh, the bone spurs and, and uh, get rid of all the arthritis. I can repair your labrum. But he said, look, that's just a Band-Aid. Because you're going to come back to me in six months because you're going to go back to doing this CrossFit and Spartan and all that other stuff that you do. And uh, you're going to say, hey, um, this thing's still hurting. Mm -hmm. um, so I just kind of let it ride for a while. And they, so he told me that's what was wrong. And 
I just continued working out in, in the box. Uh, but over a period of time, it just became evident that it, it needed to be done now. You know, I'm, I'm in pretty decent shape now if I wait five or ten years down the line uh, because I'm, I'm young for this type of operation. My health and, and level of fitness is not going to be greater, you know, as time passes. But uh, I guess the, the ultimate decision was when I was playing golf with some buddies and I'm just standing there and my, and my leg was just, it would just give out. Um, you know, sort of like during the go ruck, but those were under obviously mm -hmm. heavy load and adverse circumstances. So I'm just walking and my leg stops working. Uh, and that would happen on a more frequent basis. And I said, this doesn't make any sense. I, you know, I should do it right now. So that was the impetus for, for doing it. So, you know, what's next? Um, that's the cool part. Uh, the doctor said, um, you'll be able to do everything that you did before, but you'll be able to do it without pain. And to me, it's like, yeah. now it's like, you know, we're, what's the new benchmark for me now? Um, and look, I, I thoroughly love being in the position that I am and having a relationship with, that I do with you guys and everybody else in the box. Because even though my job is security and it has, you know, it, it relates to national security for infrastructure and all that kind of stuff, that's all fine and dandy. But what I love more than anything else is having a positive influence on somebody's life. So I see that, you know, I, th I think my responsibility is God put me on earth to serve other people. And this, in, in some small way, is my responsibility to show people that you're not a victim of anything in your life. That you, you know, the old adage, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Mm -hmm. Man, I'm churning lemonade as much as I can mm -hmm. make it. Uh, so this is just one more challenge uh, and test from God to see, have you forgotten those roots uh, and those important lessons that you learned at a very young age uh, by people who were uh, people of integrity and, and honor and, uh, and all those really important attributes in life. Are you still that guy or are you going to be the guy who, like a lot of people, make excuses for yourself? Well, you're older now. You need to take a break. And, you know, you've, you, you, you deserve that. You should kick back and, uh, and reap the, 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 uh, the benefits of being older and, you know, let the young folks go do that. It's, no. To me, I'm, I'm reinvigorated. Yeah. So I look forward to going through all the exercises and the pain now that I'm going to experience in rehab because I know the goal, you know, that the finish line, finish line is not the right analogy, but somewhere down the line, that pain's going to go away. And now it's okay. Now I have no more pain. So what's the new benchmark for what I can lift? And I and obviously I have to be careful about how much, you know, weight bearing stuff I do now. Um, but um, I look forward you know, to it. We, we've had, like, so most, if most people don't know, this is what, 15 days post-op? Something like that? Yeah. Thursday before Christmas, like or 15, no. 16 days post-op, somewhere around there. So, yeah, he's walking around the living room. Yeah, and even to yeah. build even more on that. So for those listening <coughs> at home that don't know, I'm going to give you the, the easiest way that I can describe the surgery that Colonel just had. They cut about, a, what, about a 10 to 12-inch section of your hip, yeah. went inside your leg, literally chop sawed the top of your femur off just hacked it right off screwed a hole in it banged a brand new hip socket in the top of your leg right am i right so far yep and cleaned out your hip 
socket on the inside and snapped you together like a Lego puzzle. Lego puzzle. That's about it. Right? Stitched you back up, got you all good and ready to roll. Right? So you had this surgery on, was it a Thursday? December 21st. Was, it was a Thursday or yeah. something? Yeah, it was just before Thursday. Christmas. And you were, you, were in, you were doing CrossFit the day before. Wednesday. Yeah, yeah that was your last one. Because we talked right. about it. He's like, I'm going to come in Wednesday and that'll be my last workout before my surgery. And I'm like, oh, I said, okay, it sounds good. When's your surgery? And you said Thursday. Yeah. You know, so I got talking to my wife. I'm like, yeah, Colonel's having certain <clears throat> hip surgery tomorrow. She just looks at me. She's like, yeah. didn't he just do the workout at right. 530? Yeah. I was like, yeah. You know? So you have this surgery that's crazy that I couldn't imagine doing something like this because it's super invasive <clears throat> and very destructive it seems how long were you laid up in the bed before you ever to get out of the bed and walk around um two hours after i woke up i was i got up and went to the bathroom yeah see that's the kind of shit that i'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> and i've been telling that everybody that didn't mean that was a smart thing yeah. to do but i did it they're like how's colonel doing i was like colonel is not a human colonel <laughs> is a cyborg and that's a you know, and just to go back, like I said, me and you talk often about things outside the gym and inside the gym, but we, we've talked about, you know, just dealing with the pain that you are dealing with for however long on a day, like I know it was affecting your sleep. It was affecting just riding the car. It was just sitting down, Yeah. you know? So one of the first questions I asked you post-op is the pain now versus the pain before. And you were like, we're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because... This pain at, at post-op surgery, it's not going to last forever. Right. So if it's tolerable to the, or relatable to the pain you had previously, then you know we're you know we're going to get better. It's going to be good. Um, but yeah, you know I'm like I said, I'm never excited for anyone to have surgery. But when you decided to go with the full hip replacement, I was actually happy because I know what the future will hold for you. You know, and that's. We don't know because you've always been in pain for the last, I mean, I'll say year, year and a half at least since yeah. that, go rough, that go rough tough uh, put, yeah. it, put it on you. I um, think so. You know, and you'll come in and there are certain things you do, you know. We got heavy back squats, well, you're like, eh, but you go deadlift 455 pounds, mm-hmm. you know. like So, I mean, as far as the training aspect, I'm, I'm excited for you, you know, because... Like, we have some days where I'm pain-free, and I get to train, and I'm pretty excited about it. E-Rock's always in pain, so he yeah. never gets to react yeah, right. to that. But no, you know, it's exciting to see, you know, what's next, you know. If we can't load Bear, maybe we'll just go for distance, you know, like... Uh, yeah, we'll definitely figure something yeah, out. It'll, it'll be good, you know. We're, we're excited for you, you know. Uh, Thank you. You know, um, yeah. and, you know, just, just to go back, like, from day one, you've been a positive influence on my family and our gym. You know, uh, and I'm sure that's speaking for everyone times a million, you know. So we're thankful for you, Colonel. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate it. Of course. Yeah, for sure. I, I second that notion. I mean, you already know how we feel. And it's funny, too, because a lot of people in the box feel that way as well. You know, like they just when Colonel comes in, it's how you doing, sir? And just, you know, everybody loves to see you. So, but, you know, I tell them cool. I have I have friends and we have acquaintances that that own other gyms and everything. And I tell them. You know, they'll have a master's division athlete or whatever, like, oh, so-and-so. And I was like, bro, you don't have a Colonel Jones. Yeah. Like, I could tell them that they don't have, you know. And I know it's a fact. Like, yeah, your guy can do whatever snatch that's tight. But he ain't going to do it for longer than Colonel. He's not going to do it like Colonel's going to do it, yeah. you know. Uh, like, I always, you know, I always thought it was amazing is that 
Well, first impressions again, we'll go back. We're at the old box in Paradise, and people don't realize know where Colonel's house is in Lagatuda in reference to Paradise. Mm-hmm. It's probably eight to ten miles. So Saturday morning, we're uh we come to the gym, I'm opening up the doors and everything, and here comes Colonel jogging in the door with a weight vest on. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, Where'd you park? You know? And you're like, Oh no, I, I ran here. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm looking at Darren, I'm like, this man ran here eight miles with a weight vest on. Running down the to highway. To come do a workout. Yep. And then it's, Colonel, you want to ride home? No, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get home. And I'm like, okay. And he runs <laughs> another eight miles down Highway 90 to go home, you know? Yeah, well, it's the same thing when we moved to Paul Mallard, because I remember going sometimes, if I didn't pass you up on Paul Mallard with your vest on, I would either, I'd get to the box and somebody would say, Colonel's going to be here in a few minutes. I just passed him up down the street with his vest on. So, yeah, you know, so that's just, just that just shows, you know, most of us would look at an eight-mile run with a weight vest as like, all right, that's enough for all day. Yeah. Well, this is eight mile there to do a 30-minute workout, yeah. to pack it up, and then and go they're running eight miles home. You know, it's just, most people are not born with that inside their body. Yeah. You know, I am not. Like, I do not want to subject myself to that, you know, and that's that's you. I mean, I've gone outside in the, in the late afternoon, and they've had water all over my driveway, or Dara finds water and they're like, why is that water? And I'm like, well, Colonel probably would have run. He drank out the hose like, <laughs> all the true. way past the yeah. library, you know? Yeah. And she's like, you serious? And then we'll leave. And then sure enough, he'll mm-hmm. be jogging down with his rucksack on, you know? It's just, yeah. it's it's pretty amazing, you know, to, what it does for me is it gives me hope, not only to be the type of person that you are and, and dad that you are to your kids, but if at 50, 50 53? 55. 55. 55, if I can give a, uh, three quarters of what you can do, yeah. I'll be, you know, I'll be yeah. happy. Like, that's the goal, man. Like, uh, you set the standard, you know. I tell people all the time, especially my high school kids, when I was training the high school kids, I would tell them, I can bring a guy in his 50s here that will beat your ass at this mm-hmm. and then talk to you while he's doing it. Like, it's it's fun for him. It's It's enjoyable. Like, it's not a bad thing that this hurts. You know, this is going to hurt right now. But it's gonna be successful three months from now because it hurts so bad now, you know. And you and that's what you bring to the table every single day, you know. I don't know anyone else like that. That's yeah. that's just me. I, I I know no one else that does that, you know. So, yeah. like I said, anytime you're around us, I know we're getting better just being in your presence, you know. And that's how I feel. Yeah. So, I mean, we could probably go on and on for a couple hours. We've already been at it for a while, um, but. Just thank you for everything. Thank you for coming on the show and just letting us, you know, pick your brain and, and hear some of your amazing stories. And hopefully some people will listen to this and, and get to know you a little bit better, especially some of our new members who don't really know who you are or haven't met you yet. They just know that that guy is out there and hopefully, you, you know, once you recover, you can get back in and kind of hang out with us again and stuff like that. And people can meet you and all too. So uh, that would be fun for us too. But uh, again, thank you. We wish you well and your speedy recovery to get back in the box. And um, well, and like the the funny thing is, first of all, I thank you genuinely from the bottom of my heart for all your humbling comments. I'm no better than anybody else. I'm just an, an average guy who's been who the good Lord has put some opportunities in front of me, and fortunately, some people showed me you go towards those opportunities, and and I'm the one that really benefits from you guys. I mean, I, it, you guys serve through all the things that I've you know, talked to you about and that you know about me personally. When I see you guys and the, and the rest of the folks in the box, regardless of where they are and their, their level of fitness and, and, and that sort of thing, it's, 
it's a it's a continuing motivator for me um, because it is yeah you know obviously as the years pass it becomes more difficult but I see everybody else keep pushing and that serves being in that environment is it, it's infectious for me so um, thank you for all the, the the work that you guys doing and and um, and telling people you can do more than you think you can and this is this is the type of environment where you can do it yeah. so sure. thank you for that of course it's been cool hanging out with y'all too yeah I know good we'll time do we'll, more definitely, often. we'll, we'll do it probably again. do it again yeah. Yeah. so thank y'all for listening this is uh, another episode of 321 show and uh, we'll see y'all next time <laughs>